But if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Amos chapter 9 and verse 11. Hopefully you saw that on the screen and we're getting there in advance of me. It's on page 818 in the Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. And when you found Amos chapter 9, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. In that day, I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine, and all the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. I will plant them on their land, and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them. The Lord your God has spoken. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of God's word. You may be seated. And I invite you to pray with me. Our gracious Father, we long for and look forward to days where the mountains drip with sweet wine and there is um, all the effects of the curse and of sin removed from this creation. Father, we long for these hope-filled days. And God, we pray that as we study this text and as we conclude this book, this study of the prophet Amos and his writing, that we would see and savor Jesus Christ, the seed of David, the one who is rebuilding the tent. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back when I preached through the book of Exodus and we were studying the tabernacle, I said this, the greatest reason we have for studying the tabernacle in detail, which we did, is because the theme of God dwelling among his people is one of the grandest themes of all of the grand themes in the Bible. God dwelling with his people. And then we we looked at John chapter 1 and verse 14, where the gospel writer says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that word for dwelt among us in the Greek is the idea of tabernacle. He pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. And we went back and looked all the way to the Garden of Eden, and we considered how Uh, God did dwell with humanity, his creation. But because of the sinfulness of Adam and Eve, they were banished from God's presence. The Old Testament tabernacle, as we were studying it, and then later the Old Testament temple, they were major steps in reversing that curse of separation between God and man, where God would again dwell with his people 
in a garden-like paradise. It's not by accident that the curtains of the tabernacle uh, had pomegranates on the tapestries, and they would remind the Israelites of the Garden of Eden. Even the cherubim that uh, would guard the presence of God uh, in the Garden of Eden were on the um, the, the Ark of the Covenant, again, guarding God's presence from us, hearkening us back to all these things from the garden, the time when God dwelled with men. But the tabernacle and the temple were never the final goal. They were part of God's unfolding plan of redemption. So you will recall what Jesus said about the temple during his earthly ministry. In John chapter 2, we see Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, God's plan to dwell with his people would really be through the power of the Holy Spirit to dwell in his people. And Christ himself would be the cornerstone of a new and living temple. So the tabernacle, as we studied it, was a major step toward our understanding of how it is God and man can dwell together again. How can a holy God dwell amongst his sinful people? We learned that the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the priestly ministry all point us forward to Jesus and to the house that he is constructing of his redeemed people. Now, once again, in the Minor Prophets, as we come to the book of Amos, we have these themes. Uh, A dwelling place, uh, an Eden-like paradise being described. Tabernacle of David, fallen tent. But as the Lord would have it in the progress of his unfolding revelation of his word, it is the shelter or the tent of David, not the Old Testament tabernacle, that would be a place of refuge for Israel and all nations to dwell in peaceful paradise with the Lord. So consider with me first, as you're looking at your outlines this morning, a fallen shelter restored. A fallen shelter restored. In verse 11, Amos offers a glimmer of hope to the people of Israel. And what has been, can we be just totally honest, a rather gloom and doom book, right? Like, have you, are you ready for the hope of Amos here seven or eight weeks into this study? It's been hitting us with judgment and judgment and judgment. No hope, it seems. And then verse 11 comes as a ray of hope. There is coming a day, Amos says, when the shelter or the booth, the tabernacle of David will be restored as in the days of old. This should probably be understood as a reference to the dynasty or the kingdom of David. Sometimes uh, it would be referred to as the house of David, but the shape it's in right now, it can only be called a tattered tent. You see, Judah in the southern kingdom of Israel for the last 150 years leading up to the time of Amos's writings was subordinate to the northern kingdom and the Israelites. All the way from the reign of Omri to the reign of Pekah, in 734 BC, uh, they were subordinate. Now, Judah's king, Azariah, or Uzziah, regained some of that stature of the southern kingdom during his reign from about 787 to about 747, but 
Leprosy ended his influence prematurely, and his son Jotham became co-regent in 759 BC, and the matters deteriorated rapidly in Judah under Jotham's reign, and David's so-called tent was falling. So, from the perspective of the northern kingdom, to whom Amos is primarily delivering this message, this promise of hope probably sounded rather absurd. If you think about it, uh, to the 8th century northerner, things had never been better. Prosperity all around. Things are going great. And you're telling me that our hope is in the southern kingdom? Well, Amos was only repeating what Scripture had long since foretold. The hope of Israel is the promised son of David. The hope of Israel, northern, southern, is the promised son of David. If you look with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, I encourage you, if you want to put a finger in Amos 9 and flip over to 2 Samuel 7, you will see this promise that was given to David, a covenant. Chapter 7 and verse 8. In the Christian standard, it's on the screen for you if you're having trouble getting there. So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you, like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. And I want you to notice a few of the parallels between this text and our text today in Amos chapter 9. That the Lord uh, himself would build a house for David or rebuild the the tent, if you will. Uh, That evildoers will not continue to oppress them, working our way backwards. And then that the Lord would plant his people never to be disturbed. All of that language is seen in this promise to David and is found in Amos chapter 9. And then Samuel goes on to say, in 2 Samuel, that a descendant of David will be the one who will build the house and be established forever. The hope of the Jews was that the hope of the messianic son of David would reign forever. His tattered tent would become an eternal dynasty of a house. But secondly, in Amos chapter 9 and verse 12, We see not only the fallen shelter being restored, but a frustrating enemy possessed. A frustrating enemy possessed. Did you hear that in the covenant made with David that evildoers would not continue to oppress them as they had done before? Amos chapter 9 verse 12 says, In the days when he rebuilds the tent as in the days of old, so that they, the Israelites, may possess the remnant of Edom... And all the nations that bear my name, 
This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. Now, what is this frustrating enemy to whom I'm referring? That would be the Edomites. Edom was used symbolically often by the prophets as an embodiment of all of the hostility that Israel would face. Remember, the Edomites were descendants of um, the descendants of Esau, and they there'd been no small amount of hostility between the brothers, the descended nations of Edom and Israel. And all the way back in the book of Numbers, there had been a prediction by Balaam that Edom would be possessed by Israel. So this is a long-standing uh, feud between the brothers and mistreatment by the Edomites of the Israelites. And Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, a little biblical theology for you there, Genesis 3.15, and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. You see that promise there? Edom will be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. So when Amos predicts the overthrow of Edom, one could argue from the greater to the lesser, all of Israel's enemies will be subdued when Edom is under control. In other words, this is the last great enemy to be subdued. And if Edom is subdued, all of your enemies are at peace with you because that was the greatest threat they had had. The truth of the matter is, there was only one time in the history of Israel's kings when any king had previously subdued and conquered the Edomites. It was under David's reign, under King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 14, he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So, as Alec Motyer puts it, when Edom falls, all worldly opposition is clearly and finally ended, and the second and greater David will have certainly arrived. The fall of Edom is one of the signs of the Messiah. Now, the parallelism in Amos chapter 9 and verse 12 confirms this idea that when Edom is under control, all of the enemies of Israel are at peace with them. There's a, a, a parallelism in verse 12 that says, what well, they will possess the remnant of Edom. And then the prophet says, clarifying, all the nations that bear my name. It's not just Edom, it's all the nations that bear my name. Or as the ESV puts chapter 9, verse 12, all the nations who are called by my name. This is nothing less than a promise that all Gentile nations will find their hope in the promised son of David and his kingly reign. And so we conclude, secondly, the hope of Gentiles is the promised son of David. Are you tracking with me? If Edom's under control, all the Gentile nations are under control. So the hope of all nations who are called by God's name is in the promised son of David. Now this is confirmed by the way James incorporates Amos chapter 9 along with other passages from prophetic writings 
to explain the phenomenon of the gift of the Holy Spirit being equally given to Gentiles as it was given to Jews after Pentecost. So turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Students of the Bible will know that events of Acts 15 are often referred to as the Jerusalem Council. The question at hand for the council was essentially, do the Gentiles who receive the Holy Spirit need to become Jewish or be circumcised in order to be saved? This is the question on the table. Do the Gentiles who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit need to become Jewish and get circumcised in order to be saved? Peter and Paul and Barnabas all recount stories of how the Holy Spirit was falling upon the Gentiles just as the Spirit had fallen upon the Jewish people. And having heard their testimony, James speaks up. We'll pick up the Jerusalem Council in verse 14 of Acts 15. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. Now, note right away the connection to the book of Amos. God has taken a people as a possession for his name. Incidentally, to be called by the name of God or taken possession under the name of God is speaking of God's choosing, his electing them. God had chosen his people Israel. They were a people called by his name. In Amos chapter 9, it says, all the nations of the earth who are called by my name. And so James right away sees a connection the way God has taken possession of those from Gentile nations to call them by his name triggers James's biblical thinking. And he mashes up at least two, maybe three or four, Old Testament prophecies. Now, there's no end to the depth into which we could plunge at this very moment. And to simplify things, I'm going to skim the top, get the cream off the top of hours of reading of commentaries and articles, scholarly articles to help you see this progressive revelation unfolding. So let's start in verse 15, and notice how James is harmonizing or putting together prophetic writings to make a singular, singular point. He says, And the words of the prophets, plural, the prophets, agree with this. Agree with this fact that Gentiles are being called by his name. As it is written, so the words of the prophets agree, as is written. There are multiple prophetic writings James sees as being fulfilled in the conversion of Gentiles after Pentecost, and he's going to summarize their points. Now I'm going to go from here and use the NASB, which is a more literal rendering of the Greek text. Looking at verse 16 and 17, and then I'll try and break it down for you. After these things, I will return... And I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Now, hopefully you caught a lot of Amos 9 right there. Okay, you put a lot of those pieces together. But notice first that James says, after these things. That is not a quote from Amos. Amos begins his prophecy in that day. 
It seems to me that James knows that the day being described in Amos is the same as the after these things that many commentators believe he is pulling from Hosea chapter 3 and verse 5, which also refers to the last days. So look at Hosea 3 and verse 5. Afterward, that's the same Greek phrase, the after these things that he quotes later, the sons of Israel will return and seek. Now that word seek was not in Amos. It's in Hosea though. And seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So the afterward being referred to in Hosea is after the judgment of Judah and their return from exile to Babylon. That word again, afterward, is the same phrase that James quotes in the Jerusalem council as he mashes up these two prophetic writings from Hosea and from Amos. And then did you notice how Hosea provides the seek the Lord? That was not at all in Amos chapter 9. So what is James doing? What is happening? He is, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and recorded for us by Luke's pen, interpreting the Old Testament prophecies of a coming day when Gentiles would be called by the name of the Lord and seek the Lord in the rebuilt tabernacle of David. He's interpreting the Old Testament prophecies and telling us there's... They said there would come a day when Gentiles would be called by the name of the Lord and they would seek the Lord in the rebuilt tabernacle of David. Now, there's more we could discuss here, but I want to focus now on this rebuilt tabernacle. Do you remember the promise of God given through Samuel to David? Emphatically, the promise is, I will build a house. I, God speaking, I will build a house. The Jewish people didn't believe, excuse me, the Jewish people who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah thought Solomon's temple that had been rebuilt, that second temple, the big magnificent building, they said, look at that building. You know, those giant stones laid on each other. And you remember when we studied Mark's gospel? What were the disciples of Jesus privy to? His prophecy that not one stone of that temple would be left upon another. James knew that. He knew that that magnificent, marvelous structure would be completely destroyed. And so uh, G.K. Beale contends that the statement about rebuilding the tabernacle of David appears to be the answer to a question that is found in the book of Acts, what kind of house will you build for me? And it's a, uh, what is that? Rhetorical question, right? Uh, he's quoting, Stephen is the martyr as he's dying, uh, the words of God and, the, and through the prophet Isaiah 66 verse one, where the prophecy says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. What will be my resting place? In other words, no human can build an adequate structure to house God's presence. In the eternal new order, only God can build a house that can house God's presence and all of God's people. 
which he began to do when he raised Jesus from the dead. He inaugurated the first fruits of the new heavens and the new earth, a new cosmos, such that Jesus uh, said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. I will build this temple in three days. And the Jews said it's taken 46 years to build this temple, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So James and the other apostles now understand what the writer of Hebrews also confirms for us. Jesus is the promised tabernacle of David. He is the cornerstone of a new and living temple into which Jews and Gentiles are being built brick by brick into a living temple that is the true tabernacle after which the earthly tabernacle was patterned. Hebrews chapter 8 says this plainly. The point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the, here it is, true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Do you see all the connections here? The tent is the true tent, the tent of David, that the Lord built. I will build a house. A descendant after you will come, and he will build a house. Was that Solomon? Categorically, no. Jesus was the descendant who would build the temple. He would build the house. He is restoring the fallen tent, and this is the true tent after which the tabernacle was patterned. After these things, in that day, the prophets say, after the judgment of Israel by Assyria, after the exile of Judah to Babylon, the Lord will rebuild the tabernacle of David so that Jews and Gentiles can dwell together in the presence of the Lord in a house not made by human hands, which is nothing less than the beginning of the new creation. Revelation chapter 21 says, I saw no temple, in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This leads neatly into the final point of Amos chapter 9 this morning, where uh, there is a fruitful day promised. A fruitful day promised. The prophet poetically depicts in Amos chapter 9 an Eden-like environment where the curse no longer exists on the ground. Uh, The New American Commentary, which we have the whole set of in our library, if you're ever looking for a good start on uh, studying a little more on a passage of Scripture, it says that plowing began the agricultural year after the first rains in October and November, Reaping, on the other hand, ended the agricultural year in April or May. So usually this gap of six months separated the plowing and the reaping. But here is a picture where the plowman is overtaking uh, the, the reaper. Like, in other words, there's so much of a harvest going on that they can't finish harvesting the crop before the plow has to start again. 
Pressing grapes is another activity that has clear time frames. So for example, the pressing of the grapes usually happens in August, September, and the planting is done in November and December. And again, this time lapse usually separated those two activities coming around. And here there's a compression of time and their work is overlapping. Vigorous activity reflects the abundance of this era. The abundance will be so lavish that it will seem as if the very mountains and the hills are oozing with sweet wine. Do you notice my... Okay, it was on purpose this morning. The fruit, the days of uh, wine and fruit, here I am, purple. (laughs) I heard it through the grapevine. All right, sorry. Alec Motyer writes this, Throughout the whole realm of God, nature is flaunting the fact that sin is gone. Like this can only be describing the effects of the curse being removed, where thorns and thistles uh, belabor us, um, keep us from the work being fulfilling and complete. This is describing a time when we are not only delivered uh, from sin, but even the power of sin for the lives Their lives, the lives of those in this fruitful time, are now not blighted by the frustration of their hopes. What they plan, they accomplish. In other words, the hope of creation is in the promised son of David. The hope of all creation is in the promised son of David. Amos envisioned a time where a total restoration of humanity, Jew, Gentile and indeed the creation itself are connected to the son of David, the promised seed. Look at the promise of the seed that would come in 2 Samuel 7. When your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Speaking of the Messiah. And praise the Lord that from the very beginning of the calling of Abram, out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, there was a promise that in the seed of Abraham, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Do you remember that in Genesis chapter 12? The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jew, Gentile, all blessed in the seed that would come from Abraham and later through David. And it was in spite of the struggle between Abraham's grandchildren, Jacob and Esau. In fact, God in his wisdom ordained the struggle between Jacob and Esau to bring about the great salvation of all of us both Jew and Gentile. Go read Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? I wouldn't have come up with this. You wouldn't have come up with this. To let the Jewish Messiah come and be crucified by the Gentiles to save the Gentiles. (laughs) Friends, as I was studying this passage and its extraordinary tentacles into all of the Bible. We've been in Numbers. We've been in Samuel. We've been in Acts. We've been in Amos, Hosea, Genesis. 
I couldn't help but be amazed at the God of grace who would so ordain these things to happen. He has designed a plan from eternity past to bring all things under the feet of Jesus so that we would dwell eternally in peace with his creation as well. No man-made temple would ever be big enough for this. Listen, there is no grander vision of reality than this, the end of Amos chapter 9. As we go through our lives, God gives us the privilege, like James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Listen, every sweet sip of wine, every delightful taste of coffee, every child's laughter, every bird's song point to the greater glory of God, the Creator. And he desires for all men, women, boys, and girls to experience this fellowship with him that he has ordained that through his son, the descendant of David, as Paul says, according to the flesh, we might receive the gift of eternal joy in his presence. As the psalmist says in Psalm 1611, eternal pleasures at your right hand forevermore. Dwelling again in a garden, unstained by our ruinous rebellion. Now, as Christians, we can look forward to, and we can long for that day when all of creation is restored. If you're not a Christian, the hope of David's son, Jesus Christ, is held out before you today in Amos chapter 9. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus. Trust in him today and you will be saved. And then flee from the idols of this world. That is what James meant by the other four prohibitions in Acts chapter 15. Go home and read those later. All of those things that James said, we make no further constraints on them except these four things. Every one of them was connected to idol worship in the Old Testament. And guess what those things did? They prevented Gentiles, Gentile proselytes, from surprise, surprise, entering the tent of meeting with Jewish people. Go back and look at Leviticus 17. We want Jews and Gentiles to be at peace with the dividing wall of hostility torn down. Then we make no greater constraint than this. Flee from idolatry and then you can come into the tent with us. So what James is saying is that the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit is enough to bring you into the tent with Jewish people. You don't have to be circumcised, praise God. All together with the dividing wall torn down in Christ. But everyone, Jew and Gentile, must leave all idols behind. Dwell with God in spirit and truth, longing for the ultimate fulfillment of Amos 9, when we will dwell forever in a world without sin. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. Our resurrection and the earth's restoration is certainly to follow. After all, James and the apostles agree, as it is written, you and I are living in the last days.